I Know a Guy is brought to you by Robert Griffin III's Used Cars and Used Stars. Come on down to RG3's where you'll find 2007 Honda Civics and we'll let you take a test drive with Gilbert Arena's sitting shotgun. Whoops! Robert Griffin III's Used Cars and Used Stars. We used to look great once, and now we're just a shitty product. But we're still open for business. Spencer Siegel. We are recording immediately following the release of the NCAA bracket on Selection Sunday, March 12th. Before I introduce this week's guest, I just want to let you guys know to keep something in mind for next week. There's a lot going on. Aside from celebrating my birthday next Sunday, I'm trying to pry Blue Jays play-by-play guy Buck Martinez away from Dunedin, but we're not sure about his schedule at this point just yet, and we're also looking into potentially getting Stephen Cook, the leading scorer for the Princeton Tigers and a new cheer alum of 2013. He's led the Princeton Tigers to the NCAA tournament, and we may have him on as well next week. So stay tuned. I'll keep you updated on who the guy is that I know for next week that we bring on the show. I will tell you, though, that regardless of who we get next week, in lieu of not getting me a birthday present, which you weren't going to do anyway, all I ask of you wonderfully loyal people is to give it a share on your social medias, and whoever we get for next week, if you feel like it, give it a listen. It'll be a good time for everybody. With that, it is time to start the second episode of I Know a Guy, a recording in Sam Thomas's apartment in downtown Chicago on the north side, and that is the man we bring in today, the guy that I know, is Sam Thomas, and well, he's a guy you should know for several reasons, but Sam, first of all, thanks for hosting and joining today. Absolutely. Happy uh, you had me on. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to actually have the second episode recorded directly at my home, getting ready to get started. So, as I did last week with Andrew, I'll do the same thing with you. Let's start by breaking down your sports strengths and where they lie. What are you going to talk to us about with the most knowledge? Right. Well, so today doesn't take a genius to understand the predominant focus of the conversation will be on the tournament. Uh, as a sports fan myself, um, there are two sports above the rest. One is baseball, uh, specifically the White Sox. Just Grew up playing baseball through high school, always loved it, first love, it will always stay that way. Uh, And then my second is college basketball. I was lucky enough to go to Michigan at a time where the basketball program was actually stronger than it had traditionally been ever since the Fad Five had had graced those halls and then abruptly left and amidst many scandals to follow that (laughs) tarnished Michigan's basketball reputation for 20 years thereafter, but I digress. I was lucky enough to see the Trey Burke era era at Michigan and see the national championship game appearance followed by the Elite Eight. So obviously we will spend the majority of time talking today about the tournament. And as I 
agreed to sign a disclaimer before this show with Spence. I will not spend 20 minutes talking about Michigan's tournament win today over Wisconsin. For those of you that weren't aware, Michigan won the Big Ten oh, tournament today over knows. Wisconsin, and we can go play-by-play play over the game, but, but we'll, we'll save that for another week. We will talk about the games that matter to the rest of the country uh, as, as well. So, yes, first of all, Sam is riding high for sure after <laughs> watching a performance for Michigan winning the Big Ten tournament and a great Big Ten championship at that for them. But we do get into the tournament that's been announced. And right before we do that, I do want to follow up real quick. You said White Sox, you said Michigan, and I do want to get into fandom. Are there any other teams that we're missing? Sure, yeah. So I think just you got to be fully disclosed up front. It, those are the two teams in, in rank order that are at the top. And then as a Chicago sports fan, I call myself a fan of the Bears and I call myself a fan of the Bulls. Okay, so as we jump into the tournament here, which teams have a path that you can look at and say this is conceivable for them to reach the Final Four or maybe the Elite Eight? Yeah, so I think you got to, as you do every year, go directly to the top again with the big boys and, and North Carolina. You, you look at them, you obviously you throw away the 116, not to upset our four Texas Southern fans that are, I know, listening to this podcast, but the reality is they're not going to lose. No one seed will lose. Sorry, everyone. Gonzaga will win. They will beat South it's Dakota State, soon. and they will beat them comfortably by at least 15 points. And they will, they will, they will likely be down at half even in that game. And everyone will say, "I told you so." And then the cream will rise to the top, and Gonzaga will win that game comfortably. It will not happen this year, and it will not happen. A 16 is going to beat a one in our lifetime. You can believe that as a fact. As as a Chicago sports fan and uh, someone that never thought they'd see the day where another, we're actually now two. Chicago sports instances have happened in the last in the last six months. I, I won't dispute that. I, I think the Cubs winning the World Series and Northwestern making the tournament have taught us that the whole never argument just doesn't apply to the world of sports, which is the reason that we all love it. And as we mention Northwestern, we go into their draw, and I'll be the first to tell you, as somebody who is a little bit more uh, partial to that squad than others that are on this bracket. They actually set up where we knew all along that Northwestern was probably going to get a 7, 8, or 9 seed, maybe a 10, somewhere in that range where if they won their first game, their second game would be against one of the big dogs. And that's the case. And of the big dogs, drawing Gonzaga in that potential second-round matchup is enticing because the jury's out on Gonzaga, and Northwestern might be the team that tries to figure that out. And that's fair. As as much as I would say Gonzaga will win their 116, and I'm always going to be on the Gonzaga side of why they should be a one seed when you look at the body of work, to use those three words that the committee loves, the body of work over the course of the season, I will always support Gonzaga as a one. I think that it's right. I think that it's fair. That being said, if you put Northwestern, if you blindfold them, walk their 10 guys into a gym, and say, all right, who would you rather see on the other side of the court? Villanova, Kansas, Carolina, or Gonzaga? They're going to say Gonzaga, and I think that's rightfully so, uh, based on tournament history and just the eye test as well. It's a good thing Northwestern is no longer coached by Bill Carmody because if they were playing that 1-3-1 defense against a team like Vanderbilt, they would be in for a long day. Vanderbilt, of course, one of the top three-point shooting teams in the country. Um, now Chris Collins is bringing about a more traditional man-to-man defense, which neutralizes that to an extent. I think as any 8-9 game is, that's no more than a coin flip either way, and that ultimately is, I think, a good draw for Northwestern to say that it's a coin flip. So obviously a good draw for Northwestern, a tough first-round matchup with Vanderbilt. 
Talk to me, though, about Michigan. That's the team that you have the most knowledge on. They draw a first-round matchup against Oklahoma State, the 7-10 matchup. Michigan plays four games in four days to win the Big Ten tournament in dramatic fashion from being a bubble team to a seven seed. Now, how do you assess where they drew in the bracket? Yeah, so the first thing I'll say on Michigan is that traditionally over the past few years, I have been a proponent that it does not matter how you are playing going into the NCAA tournament. It doesn't matter how you finish the regular season. It does not matter how you fared in your conference tournament. It's a blank slate. You're going to probably be playing a team that you've never played before. It's a completely blank slate, and most of the times it's a toss-up regardless of how you've been playing and what quote-unquote form you have been in. That being said, when something happens that's slightly outside of the regular uh, realm of basketball, such as what happened with the widely publicized instant with the plane with Michigan, you go through that sort of experience and say what you will, and I'm sure all the Michigan haters out there will say, oh, the plane scared it off the runway, it ran into a fence, it's not a big deal, everyone was fine. The reality is, thank God, everybody was fine. But when something like that happens, it can galvanize a team, especially a team that I've watched over four years in this senior class, that goes through ups and downs a lot. The reality is, I like the word momentum with Michigan, uh, I, I like them slightly favored Oklahoma, over an Oklahoma State team. Can Michigan beat Louisville? So when I first saw the draw, my mind immediately went back a couple of years to the championship game, and I thought, great, we get a revenge game against Louisville. I'm sure the committee set it up that way, blah, blah, blah. And again, it's, it's a perspective trying to remove my loyalties as much as possible. Just as I brought up the discussion for Northwestern, you blindfold them, you bring them into a gym, who do you want to see on the other side? I'm looking across the board at the other twos, and I'm saying if I'm a Michigan as a 7-10, and I'm winning that game, and I'm going to the second round against a 2, would I rather open up my eyes and see Duke, Kentucky, Arizona, or Louisville? And I'm going to say 10 times out of 10, Louisville. I mean, you look at the, the caliber of those two seeds. Those are good teams. Kentucky, Duke, no. No shot, but a Louisville team that, you know, it, it not did not finish the regular season or the conference tournament at the top of their league. I think that that's actually a pretty decent draw for Michigan, and I think that they'd have that they'll have a puncher's chance in that game if they can get by Oklahoma State. It seems to me that breadth is the word of the year in college basketball because the Big Ten does not have depth; it has breadth, and this tournament field especially with the ones, Proves twos, it. and three Proves seeds. Yep. With UCLA as a three, Gonzaga as a one, Villanova, Duke all scattered in there. Duke's a Proves two. It, yep. It's breadth, not depth. So there is reason for optimism for every team out there heading forward. And because of that, we're going to dive into a couple of other different aspects of the tournament. And the first one is, of course, upsets. So before we get to the game we're about to play... Do you have any upsets in the 12-11 range, maybe 13, that you're looking at and you say, I would highly recommend considering this team as an upset pick? Yeah, that's that's interesting. And, and I know I don't want to uh, throw off the game you have planned, but I do want to make something clear because we'll, we'll go into this in a second. You'll see what I, what I mean. The pick that I go to in general, the upset that actually jumped off the board at me, is a 3-14 and, and I know that's not a seating that you mentioned, but I'm going to go there anywhere because this does jump off the page at me. And it's in the West, 
and it's looking at Florida Gulf Coast against Florida State. Now, Florida Gulf Coast, of course, rose to national prominence with, with their explosive dunking ability a few years back and their ability to knock off number two seeded Georgetown. And their ability to produce guys like Chris Sale, right? The reality is... Florida Gulf Coast is a team that has the athletes to compete with big program schools. Now, they have a little bit less depth as, as your, national, like your ACC team, but Florida State, when you look at their recent body of work and how they ended the season, and actually if you just watch them live, uh, they, they struggled. Now, Dwayne Bacon is, is a great player. He's a, he's a Wooden Award candidate, but he's not the guy that you see. He's the prototypical guy that's going to take over in March. Um, and I just I think Florida State is a vulnerable team. I think that they aren't playing with a whole lot of confidence because they've been getting beat up a little bit in the ACC to end their year. Uh, and I think you look at a team like Florida Gulf Coast, they have the, the athletes to match up with a big program school. And I can tell you what, an in-state rival, they're not going to be afraid of that matchup. Um, if anything, they're going to be more comfortable going against a school in their own state. Especially in Orlando. Most people don't have the intestinal fortitude to pick a 14 through 16 seed to win a game. Obviously, you're not in that list. I remember my one bracket buster was Florida Gulf Coast when they were the 15. I had them winning that game along with apparently everybody else in the country. (laughs) That was back in 2013. But it's fun to take that big swing sometimes, even if you come up empty. So we're going to play a game called Shot in the Dark, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to pick a 14, a 15, and a 16 seed to win. No questions asked. It's a free, no-risk pick. And if you miss it, it, it was supposed to happen anyway. So go ahead. You had your 14 that you mentioned. Now give me your 15 and your 16. Yes, yeah, so exactly right. As you said, I have the 14 that I mentioned. Uh, the 16, again, shot in the dark because it goes against what I started the show saying. Um, I'll take Mount St. Mary's to, to beat Villanova. Uh, for the simple reason that, despite the fact that I don't believe it will happen this year... It's free. It's free. It, it, it's a free, high upside, no uh, no downside pick. So I'll take Mount St. Mary's uh, with the ability to keep up with a Villanova team that I think partially has that one, uh, the one, number one overall seed on the basis of what they did last year, being the defending champions, and I think that's the right way to seed it. But I still think that they're a little bit overvalued at that one. So Mount St. Mary's at the 16. Now, for my 16, I figured it would be best to go with the weakest one seed, so I did pick South Dakota State against Gonzaga, and the Jackrabbits have proven that they can be a tough tournament team in the past. We did the 16s. You gave me your 14. Let me get to your 15. Who do you have? All right, my 15. I'm going to that Midwest region, that same little corner of the bracket that we started the show talking about, uh, and I'm going to take Jacksonville State over Louisville. Again, I think that Louisville is the weakest two. And hey, on this, <laughs> this streak of good fortune that Michigan has been on, it would be very fitting to see the 15 beat the two right in front of them and give them a much easier path to the Sweet 16. I'm going to stay in the Dakotas in my higher seeds here and actually in the same portion of the bracket as Gonzaga. I'm picking North Dakota over Arizona as my free cheese 15 seed pick just because of the fact they were down six to Weber State in the Big Sky Championship with 50 seconds to go. They're a tough team, gritty, and maybe they catch Arizona on an off night offensively if they can continue to pressure them. Laurie Markinen is one of the best players in the country, in my opinion, and I actually really like Arizona to move far in this tournament, but if I'm taking a free pick, I may as well pick against Arizona and take North Dakota. And then finally, the 14 that I have is New Mexico State, who put up a nice performance in their conference championship game as well. They play Baylor, and there are about three or four teams in the country 
that are all about the same, where they get the three seed or maybe the four seed every year, and you go, that's a first-round exit team just year after year. Baylor is one. Georgetown isn't in the tournament this year, but they've been one for several years. Iowa State is another good example. Of course, Fred Hoiberg is elsewhere now. But those teams sometimes struggle in their first-round games and don't sleep on New Mexico State as a 14 to beat Baylor. So we'll move on to the final portion of our NCAA before we move forward to some baseball, and that is Mascot Madness. And we're going to play some Mascot Madness here with our 68-team bracket, and instead of picking based on the actual teams, Sam, we're breaking it down for you through the mascots, and that's only because we decided that everybody does their own different type of tournament, whether it's picking candy or, or whatever, and in this case, we're going by the mascots. So I gave you a first-round matchup of something like the Badgers versus the Hokies or the Cavaliers versus the Seahawks and didn't tell you the teams that were playing, only the mascots, and I know you don't know all 68 of them, so we went through it to the end and you picked your winner. What was your criteria for picking each nickname over one another? So I decided to keep it simple and have this be a little bit more... uh up to my own personal discretion, but essentially the basic criteria was when the two mascot names were provided to me, I just went with whatever one presented the most powerful image in my mind, and what I mean by powerful is the most vivid, clear image that I got of that specific mascot. So when you told me Badger versus Hokie, I thought to myself, I don't know or really care what a Hokie is, and I see a Badger sitting right in front of me, and so I'm going to choose a Badger. Or when you give me Golden Eagle... Versus Gamecocks. More likely than not, I'm going to choose Golden Eagle because that is the strongest image I see in my mind. So let's get to the final four here of your mascot madness. Now, interestingly enough, in your Elite Eight, you have three teams whose name starts with the word Golden. You have the Golden Eagles. That's, of course, Marquette. You have the Golden Flash, which is Kent State, moving onward. And you have the Golden Gophers of Minnesota as well. Three teams in your Elite Eight. Now, in one Elite Eight matchup, the Golden Gophers met the Golden Flash, and of course the Golden Flash came out victorious. Uh, of course, and I think the gold uh, was not necessarily by design, but I think that color is a very vivid image in your mind, and it sticks with you. You think of a Golden Flash, you see that in your mind, despite the fact that when pressed for what team is the Golden Flash, I was not able to come up with the answer on the spot. I can still say it was resonating in my mind as a strong mascot name. The Golden Flash in the Final Four met the Hurricanes, and the Hurricanes finally went down after some big wins over the Jayhawks, the Wolf Pack, among others. The Hurricane also beating the Blue Jays in their Elite Eight matchup after the Blue Jays in their Sweet 16 took down the Cardinals. It was a battle of the birds, and now it's the Golden Flash in the championship against, on the other side of the bracket, the Seminoles. And this one was easy. This was an immediate answer. It's the Seminoles. Every time the Seminoles was given to me, it was an immediate answer to pass to the next round. I think that as a college sports fan, the Seminole, that just that image and that mascot, I mean, from from Florida State and the success across multiple sports that that college has always had to just that image of, of, of the man in the mask riding on the riding on the horse through the stadium and then planting the spear in the ground. It's just powerful. It's 
it's it's great. And coming from a school whose mascot is terrible in the Wolverines, it's very nice to think of that powerful image of a Seminole. I think it, it, it was an easy choice. And the Seminoles would take down the Golden Flash. That's Florida State beating Kent State in the national championship. So mark that one down on your brackets, folks. Also, the Seminoles coming off of a big Sweet 16 win in Mascot Madness over the North Dakota Fighting Hawks. But if you know, the North Dakota Fighting Hawks used to be the North Dakota Fighting Sioux. And that'll do it for Mascot Madness. That'll do it. And as you can see, not playing favorites, because despite the fact that I love the Seminole as the mascot, I still am picking their team to lose in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Okay, when we come back, we're going to break down who you would want to be a roommate with during spring training in the MLB. We had a bunch of you take the quiz on Facebook. We'll start to reveal answers. Sam answered the questions, but he hasn't found out who his roommate is yet. Mine is Francisco Lindor. We'll talk about it when we come back on I Know a Guy. Support for I Know a Guy is brought to you by the Royal Indian Grill, where we'll give you chicken tikka masala, seek kebabs, and mango chutney to fill your stomachs. Yes, sir. I Know a Guy is also brought to you by Bump Bailey's Rubber and Tires, the official rubber of Major League Baseball. Bump Bailey's. Who you bumping? Welcome back to I Know a Guy. Spencer Siegel here with you in Sam Thomas's apartment, who joins us for week number two. He has been a gracious host so far, and we move into the baseball portion of the podcast, which is Sam's big love and knowledgeable strength. But in this case, we're not worried about knowledge. We're talking about MLB spring training roommates. We're calling this segment, Who You Bumpin'? And the backstory on that is, of course, when you send a pitcher to the mound, you're obviously sending him to the bump, because that's what all the cool hip broadcasters say these days. They call it the bump. And when you're bumping, you're bumping whoever you need to bump that day. And in this case, you can kind of treat it like a pick-to-click, if you will. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a person. Who you bump in can be anything from an inanimate object to a person who you think is about to perform really well or maybe just did. So, Sam, I'm asking you, who you bump in as your MLB spring training roommate? Now, I asked you several questions beforehand, and these were the MLB spring training roommate official quiz questions. The first question, and arguably the most important question, is what do you look for in a roommate, and you said funny. Absolutely, 10 times out of 10. When uh, when you're sitting there leaning back in the chair watching sports, <laughs> and the games run a little bit dry, there's only one thing you need, and that's to take a weird conversation thread into God knows where, and end up laughing your ass off on the ground in around two minutes. A shout-out to his current roommate, Michael Lieberman, <laughs> Absolutely. for fulfilling that requirement right in now. Spades. In I can, spades. I can speak firsthand to that one. Uh, what, is your, what is your one baseball skill? You said fielding. What league are you, cactus or grapefruit? You said cactus, favorite subject, math. Your best way to spend your free time was listening to music. You're not a pet guy. And uh, your favorite sitcom, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So we took all of those and we lumped them in and we came up with an answer that I'm going to have you guess in a moment. Now, here are your options. I told you I got Francisco Lindor along with Chris Marsh and Garrett Green, who's another fellow broadcasting buddy. Chris Marsh, a professor over at Bradley. We're all rooming with Lindor, having a grand old time over there. Meanwhile, Ryan Pierce, Jeff Siegel, that is father or poppy, as they say on Highly Questionable, (laughs) The big dog, Jeff Siegel, along with Tim Hunt, uh, my buddy Dwayne in Dunedin, 
They all got Joey Votto. The two dudes down in Peoria, Tim Van Stratton and Rodney Newpel for 96.5 ESPN, they both somehow ended up rooming with Anthony Rizzo. So those three will live together and I'm sure create havoc. Meanwhile, Bobby Hack and Jake Arrieta are roommates. No surprise there from Bobby, the Cubs fan. Of course, Jimmy Fleming, if you know Jimmy, it's fitting that he got Bartolo Colon. I think that would be one of the craziest roommate situations is rooming with Bartolo. Yes, so I think I'd say no go to Arietta. I would be honored to be in the company of any of those other players. Um, I would say that my guess would be Anthony Rizzo. So he wants to room with Tim Van Stratton, Rodney Newpel, and go ahead and be with Rizzo. Well, I've got news for you, sir. You are locked in with Jeff Siegel and the boys with Joey Votto. Wow, interesting. All right, so Joey Votto, I guess the, the first thing I think, uh, not thrilled. <laughs> Don't love the man as a player or as a person. Um, but that being said... Oh, that's just harsh. <laughs> admittedly, slightly harsh. But no, that, that's one of those things where I'm just honored to be in the company uh, of a Jeff Siegel on that list. It's, it's similar, you know, Dirk gets 30,000 points the other day. Scott Van Pelt has him on the show. Says, Dirk, you know, you're in this great company. You're now with Kareem, Wilt, Michael, Carmelo, and Kobe Bryant. And now, Dirk, how does your name feel on that list? And it's a similar thing. My name is now forever tied on a list to Jeff Siegel, and I'm humbled and honored. Well, I think you're the first, so (laughs) we'll we'll move on from there. So if everything stays true to form, and I do in fact get Buck Martinez for next week, as opposed to two weeks from now, we'll be able to talk to Buck right before the semifinals of the World Baseball Classic. And Sam, you and I were watching the WBC last night. The big matchup between the Dominican Republic and Team USA. Team USA was up 5 to nothing late in that game. Manny Machado hit a solo home run in the sixth inning. He smashed a ball to left field at Marlins Crushed Park. <laughs> and you looked at the Dominican Republic fans celebrating at Marlins Park, and you said it's amazing the kind of home run they're celebrating even though the game is over. And that's why I'm bringing Buck Martinez on as the expert, because clearly... That game was not over, and the Dominican came back and won. But let me also clarify. I meant that as the ultimate compliment to the Dominican Republic fans. I think it's great the way their fans watch these baseball games. It's a a three-and-a-half-hour party. There's no complaints about length of game, about pace of play. They are there to party, cheer their butts off, and root for guys that they actually treat as heroes and gods in their country. We can learn a few lessons about that from ourselves. As a team that calls it America's pastime, we can learn from places like the Dominican Republic and how they watch the game of baseball. And last night's contest, big for the Americans and the Dominicans respectively. Now we get into the latter stages of pool play as we're recording this now. Team USA up 7-0 on Team Canada, and a win there will at least push them into a tie with the Dominican at 2-1 and one apiece to move on to the next round of the WBC. With the, with the WBC going on right now, how do you approach this upcoming MLB season based on all of the chaos that's taking place on a world stage? I think a couple of things jump out of my mind right away. First of all, you watch, for the most part, the starting pitchers are dominating the hitter so far in the World Baseball Classic. Is that going to be a projection of this continuing trend of pitching, dominating, hitting in baseball? I don't think you can make that read. The reality is, early in the season, in spring training, pitchers are always ahead of hitters. So the fact that you see pitchers like Jose Quintana no-hitting a pretty much a U.S. all-star lineup for five and two-thirds innings, can't read too much into it outside of the fact that Jose Quintana is ahead of these hitters at this point in the season. 
And by the way, that's a White Sox point out moment right there. Jose Quintana does the perfect Jose Quintana thing that he can possibly do. He goes five and two thirds. He doesn't give up a hit until his last batter. He gets taken out of the game with a lead. That batter comes around to score with the with the pitcher inheriting the relief pitcher inheriting the runner. It's two to one. Then eventually, Colombia loses their lead, and Jose Quintana doesn't get the win. He pitches a gem. He doesn't allow a base runner until his last batter. That runner scores, so it's an earned run charge to him, and he ends up with a no decision. Yeah, and that's that's Jose Quintana for the last three four years as a Sox fan, as we, as we all have followed. I think the other thing to think about is is the benefit that these players get out of playing such a high competitive game so early on in the year. I don't think that these games will make the players that play any more likely to get worn out over the course of the season, especially with the pitches restrictions that they have on these pitchers. Um, But the reality is you've got guys that are playing in games that are likely going to be more important than any game they might play for the rest of the year. And I think it gives them the confidence over the course of a 162-game season to really just trust their abilities and trust the situation they're in there. Say, you know what? I don't really care that I'm facing Clayton Kershaw on a Tuesday night in the second game of a three-game set against the Dodgers. I I started the year hitting in the bottom of the eighth inning down two runs in a game with my entire nation watching and pulling for me, and I came up with a bases-clearing double. Like, I don't care about Clayton Kershaw. I don't care about Chris Sale. I don't care about any of this. I, I was playing a game in front of my friends, my family, my entire country, pulling for me, and I delivered. I, I think it can do nothing but good things for these players moving forward for the rest of the year. Okay, we're almost done here, Sam, and before we get into the new 96 and a half second dash, the final question I have for you is the question I asked Andrew last week. The one player in the history of sports lore that you can't stand more than anybody else, who is that player and why? All right, well, hell of a question. For that one, we'll actually head out to Portland where we will find, well, you might know him as his time from the Celtics or from time before that as a member of the Ohio State Buckeyes. But we're going to go see our friend Evan Turner of the Portland Trailblazers is the one man that I hate the most in the history of sports. And I started this when he, of course, hit the game-winning buzzer-beater half-court shot against Michigan in the tournament, which, of course, gets rubbed in the face of Michigan fans every time because it's on every tournament highlight reel. It starts there, and then it goes into when he goes to the Celtics. And as a Chicago sports fan... You just have to hate Boston because every one of their teams is so damn good and we're so jealous of the success of their teams. Anyone that doesn't admit that as a Chicago sports fan, you're lying to yourself. So it's, it's not like Chicago hasn't had their own successes, but Boston is in an entirely different stratosphere. Entirely different, and, and we all are. It's pure jealousy, and it, it just it's centered is. around Tom Brady, and it just escalates from there. It, it, it really does. And so. I I really hated Evan Turner on the Celtics. And I think if I could pinpoint the one thing, it's I hated that he actually could never develop a three-point jump shot. It was like, dude, you're a pretty good slasher. You're a pretty good defender. You're a pretty good mid-range jumper. If you could just develop a three-point shot, you'd be a perennial all-star. But he couldn't. He never could. He was the king of the one-step-in or toe-on-the-line jumper, the Luol Deng before Luol Deng learned to shoot threes approach. And, And I just hated it. And it always bugged me, it always irked me, and I'm glad to see him out in Portland where I don't have to watch him except for random times at 9 o'clock at night when I'm looking for something better to do with my time. Evan Turner. 
This question is gaining steam, and I think this needs to be the question each week. <laughs> At the end. It just puts me in a great mood to end the podcast, too. It's perfect. All right, well, we're about to wrap things up here now on I Know a Guy, and we're going to do it in a way that we used to do it back in Peoria. Tim Van Stratton and I on 96.5 ESPN Peoria. We always ended with the 96 and a half second dash, and so I figured to pay homage to that. Every show here on I Know a Guy, we're going to end with our own 96 and a half second dash, so let's do it. It's time for the 96 and a half second dash to the finish line. Here we go. Sam Thomas, it was great to get to know you this week. Thank you so much for joining me here on I Know a Guy. We will certainly look to have you back to talk some baseball in the future, but please don't expect me to pander to you about Michigan football and the almighty Jim Harbaugh. Now we're going to do a thing called Soapbox. It's your final word. Go ahead. All right, thanks, Spence. Well, to end the show today, I'm getting on my soapbox for Jose Quintana and then in a similar vein, White Sox general manager Rick Hahn. So as you may or may not have known in the World Baseball Classic on Friday night, Jose Quintana threw five and two-thirds innings of no-hit baseball against pretty much a U.S. all-star team. Jose Quintana has been held onto by the White Sox and general manager Rick Hahn uh, against some questioning why the Sox, who are being projected as a 68-70 to win team, are maintaining one of their better assets and not trading it for young players. In reality, Rick Hahn... I commend him for following basic market principles, which is that you sell overvalued assets, such as a Chris Sale, and you keep undervalued assets, such as a Jose Quintana. Jose Quintana is great, just as Chris Sale was great, but the market thinks of Jose Quintana as extraordinarily good. That's a major difference, and I commend Rick Hahn for seeing that difference. Don't forget, next week, it's either going to be Buck Martinez or Stephen Cook. I'll keep you updated all week long. But thanks for tuning in to another episode of I Know a Guy. I'm Spencer Siegel. And until next time, folks, we say adios. Adios.